Hi, I'm Julie Cohen, and I'm one of the director producers of the documentary RBG, as well as a documentary filmmaker on a host of other films. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. We welcome today Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's become such an icon. Do you mind signing this copy? I am 84 years old, and everyone wants to take a picture with me. Notorious <laughs> RBG. Yeah, yeah. When you come right down to it, the closest thing to a superhero I know. Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed the way the world is for American women. I became a lawyer when women were not wanted by the legal profession. Thousands of state and federal laws discriminated on the basis of gender. She was following in the footsteps of the battle for racial equality. She wanted equal protection for women. Men and women are persons of equal dignity and they should count equally before the law. She captured for the male members of the court what it was like to be a second-class citizen. The point is that the discriminatory line almost inevitably hurts women. I did see myself as kind of a kindergarten teacher in those days because the judges didn't think sex discrimination existed. I have had the great good fortune to share life with a partner truly extraordinary for his generation. He was the first boy I ever knew who cared that I had a brain. She is a center of power on and off the court. Every time Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent, the internet would explode. I came up with a couple slogans. You can't spell truth without Ruth. I surely would not be in this room today without the determined efforts of men and women who kept dreams alive. I've heard that she does 20 push-ups three times a week or something. I mean, we can't even get off the floor. We can't even get down to the floor. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is the trailer for the documentary RBG. And this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on September 18, 2020, after a long and illustrious career as an advocate for gender equality, a jurist, and most famously as an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court. Joining us to pay tribute to this true American icon is Julie Cohen, the co-director of RBG, the 2018 documentary that beautifully captures the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The film itself was nominated for an Academy Award and is one of the top grossing documentaries of all time. We caught up with Julie from her home in Brooklyn, New York. Julie Cohen, welcome to Factual America. Uh, Julie, how are things there in Brooklyn, New York? 
uh, things in Brooklyn and throughout uh, my beautiful United States are, you know, pretty insane right now, I guess would be the, yeah. best, uh, the best word I could use to describe it, um, with uh, events unfolding uh, minute by minute in such a way that I expect that the world, uh, when this when, when, when this goes up um, in three days from now, is going to be yeah. a completely different world than the world we're in right now. But that's how 2020 yes. has been in a lot of the world, but I think uh, particularly in the U.S. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and just for clarity's sake, for our listeners out there, uh, today's October 3rd. Uh, I think it's important to put a, <laughs> a time stamp on this. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, no big surprise. Uh, well, this, it is a surprise, but what's happened is we know uh, Donald Trump's been uh, diagnosed with uh, COVID-19. Uh, but that's not the main reason or a reason really why we're here and asked you to come on, Julie. Um, uh, as, as most of our listeners will know, is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, passed away on September 18th, 2020, after a uh, long, illustrious career. Um, she was an advocate for gender equality, Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and um, you're the co-director and co-producer of uh, the film RBG, which came out in 2018. Uh, it premiered at Sundance, it was nominated for an Academy Award, uh, one of the top 30 grossing documentaries of all time. So thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. It's great to be here. Uh, I think I gather the fit, it's, uh, I know I saw it on Netflix. I know CNN was streaming it for free a few weeks ago. Is that, is Netflix the best way for people to see it? If, if you know, in England, I think that's true. It, it, uh, it in the UK at large, it, you know, as, as you know, with film distribution, it's exactly. pretty complicated and it depends where you live. But, you know, I, I actually noticed, um, noticed on Twitter that our British distributor dog Wolf, was yeah. bringing it back to some theaters uh, this this past week. So it so it is actually in some theaters. Even it's been in it 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 re it was re released in theaters in the U.S. last week. And I know there are some theaters um, in Great Britain uh, that are that are either playing it in person or virtually as well. Yeah, I saw that. I saw Dogwolf had a credit. I saw uh, BFI was on there. Um, that's. Uh... Uh, that's, a, that's a very good point to make. We also have listeners from around the world. So uh, uh, I'm sure if you do a Google search... I yeah, it really varies country know. by country. In, in the U.S. right now, it's on CNN Go, but it's also on Hulu and, you know, I think iTunes, okay. Amazon, almost anywhere. It just depends. Google it. You okay. shall find it. And, and it goes without saying, uh, whatever your political persuasion or none, please watch it. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful film. It's uh, there's a reason it was nominated for an Academy Award. I can tell you. So, and I had a chance to watch it again uh, in the last uh, 24 hours. So um, uh, thank you again for making that film. Uh, I mean, let's, let's, let's take this opportunity to have a bit of a looking back on uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life. And uh, Julie, maybe you can start us off. What are your, you got a chance to work with her closely on the dock. Um, seems like you had all access interviews. Um, what are your memories of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Um, you know, uh, I guess my main memories of uh, Justice Ginsburg are the, the personal ones. Um, her persona is of being quite a serious, quiet, soft-spoken, intellectual person, and she was all of those things, mm -hmm. but she also had a, a different side to her. She had a real kind of 
glimmer in her eye, a real spirit of joy, uh, a great sense of humor. Um, you know, some of the moments I'll remember most clearly are having the opportunity to see her uh, both watch and perform in uh, operas at the Washington National Opera in uh, mm -hmm. in in D.C. at the at the world famous uh, Kennedy Center. She had the she it, it played played a speaking part in uh, an opera called Daughter of the Regiment. She the, the role she played was the Duchess of Crackenthorpe, and she really loved to say the word Crackenthorpe. Um, <laughs> and, you know, seeing her in those settings, um, we also were at the Santa Fe Opera with her when she was an audience member uh, for, for two separate operas, and just seeing, like, the level to which she was entranced by art in general and opera in particular. We also went to a museum uh, with her, something we filmed but didn't end up uh, including in the film, or just at any time one talked to her about books, movies, Broadway, or opera. She just loved those things, or even actually being in her home. She has some works of art on the on the wall, mm -hmm. and she would tell you the provenance and every single thing about any work of art she had. She was just like a a deep, a deep, deep art lover, um, uh -huh. and and you know someone who would just get completely engrossed in something that she loved. And I guess that's a, that's a side to her that um, I think fewer people saw, and that mm -hmm. was really lovely to behold. I, I think you, I just, it makes me think of a scene from the film, actually. Um, I'm assuming that's her office, uh, was her office uh, as a Supreme Court justice. But, you know, we talk about men and their man caves, but she had her sort of woman cave. I think about it, some of this works of art you were talking about, or just, uh, it, it looked like a lovely, lovely place to, to work for 20 odd years and as yeah. a justice. You know. Um, you know, in the film, we both show a conference room at the Supreme mm. Court, which is where the interview was done, which is kind of a grand thing with old portraits of, uh, of justices from cent centuries gone by. Yeah. But um, in, her, in her own private chambers, which is uh, sort of a, a large office with an anteroom, she has most of the art in there actually are things that are, were sent to her, often Amazing. from just fans who she didn't know, all kinds of posters and quilts, a lot of them had her own image on them. And if she found them amusing and interesting, she tended to uh, put them up on the wall. It's interesting. Uh, so, I mean, there you are in Brooklyn. She's, she was, she's from Brooklyn. Um, I mean, you, you talk, I mean, the first half of the film um, is what I, well, I deemed her, her early life, but actually it takes her up to the age of 60. But, uh, um, you know, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, background. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that from being uh, these, these, what I would assume are sort of poor background from uh, Jewish, uh, Polish and Russian immigrants and uh, making it from there to the streets of, from the streets of Brooklyn all the way to Cornell and eventually Harvard Law School. Yes, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's family did in fact come from a humble background, something which she was very proud of. Um, you know, unlike some people from similar backgrounds who sort of are trying to keep it, keep it quiet that they are, are, are from kind of a not so privileged and not so educated family, um, Justice Ginsburg was extremely proud of the, the, her, the immigrant families on, on both sides. Um, she liked to talk about a smoked fish store uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which is the area where um, Jewish immigrants came and lived in mm. packed tenements. Uh, and both her parents had lived there as children. And when she was growing up in Brooklyn, her parents used to take her to that neighborhood 
basically just to show her, to remind her where she came from. And um, it was a lesson that she really never forgot. And the fact that she was able to achieve things that her parents, particularly her mother, would have been unable to um, through her own hard work and education was something she was really proud of as, as I think, you know, and rightly so. Yeah. And, and for those, it might be difficult for some of us who grew up basically in the world that she created, or we may, some of us may not remember, um, we're a little bit older. Um, I mean, what was it like for a woman back in the 1950s and 60s when she was first starting off? Uh, right. I mean, in the, in the 1950s and 60s, even into the 70s, uh, the world for American women was very, very different from the world today in a way that a lot of young women either don't remember or, or you know, or don't know about. Um, a woman couldn't get a credit card or a mortgage in her own name. You had to have your husband sign off on something like that. You could just be fired for being pregnant. Uh, actually, it happened to RBG her, herself uh, yep. early in her life, um, such that when, when she lost a job for being pregnant on her first pregnancy, in her second pregnancy, uh, 10 years later, she chose to completely hide it. She just wore really loose-fitting clothes in the hopes that her her, uh, her bosses wouldn't figure it out, which they, they apparently didn't, or at least they were polite enough not to mention it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, husbands, you know, either by law or by custom, but depending on the, on the state, w were never prosecuted for raping their own wives. It was just viewed as like, that's like his prerogative mm -hmm. of, of marriage. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, the state of womanhood in the country was, was very different. And RBG very much experienced that herself. Yeah. Um, she was one of nine, only nine women in a class of 500 at Harvard Law School, or the, the dean of the law school at the beginning of the year, as we mentioned in the film, invited all the women to his home for a dinner, the women in, in, in the class, and went around the room asking all of them, like, what, w explain why you're here taking a place that could be held by a man. Um, when we heard that story from her, it seemed so extraordinary. Subsequently, I've learned from basically any woman who went to law school, medical school, any kind of um, postgraduate program, mm. which t told stories of professors asking them that exact same question. That was basically asked of all women, like, what are you doing here? You don't belong. Like, yeah. a pretty harsh way to be treated. Uh, of course, she was a, a great student. She made law review. She ended up transferring to Columbia Law School to follow her husband uh, when he got a job. He was a year ahead of her and got a job as a lawyer in New York. She graduated tied for first in her class at Columbia Law School. So like such a prestigious way to launch and yet couldn't get a job at the big New York law firms because they just yeah. weren't hiring women as lawyers. Like you could get a job as a receptionist or somebody's secretary, mm -hmm. but like getting a job as a lawyer was extremely difficult, if not impossible, made a little more difficult for um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, as she would point out, uh, for two other reasons. One was that she was Jewish, and exactly. many of the big, the, the, basically the big New York law firms were kind of divided into Jewish and non-Jewish firms. Yeah. Um, and the other being that um, she already had a child. And like that was viewed as like, oh my God, like how yeah. could you be, you know, and in fact, she had already had the child when she went to law school. She managed to, uh, yeah. she managed to really excel as a law student, even while raising a toddler. But, you know, the idea that you could manage to be both a, you know, a, a clerk to a judge or a associate at a law firm and like be raising a child 
seemed, you know, that the, the men who were hiring just like kind of couldn't process that. Um, so, so, so discrimination was definitely a thing. Um, and if, uh, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg hadn't really intended in, to go into her career to, to fight uh, gender discrimination, which absolutely was not her intention. Mm. Um, li life kind of brought that to her. Yeah, I mean, I have a, it's, it's a very good point. I mean, I have a, I even a note here that uh, because of that discrimination she faced in terms of not, you know, no one would give her a job, despite having these Harvard and uh, Columbia law classmates vouch for her husband and friends saying that you have to hire this person. Right. Uh, I mean, they would have been a power couple. I mean, they, they were a power couple and her husband, but I mean, they would have been like top of the top dogs in New York. And yet she, you know, no one would give her a, a, a second look. Um, I mean, did she ever say anything about having to transfer from Harvard to Columbia? Any, any, Oh yeah. She was, feelings? She, she was really mad about that. Yeah. Like, I was wondering. She, she went to, um, she, you know, she didn't, she actually didn't mind following more. I mean, they had a child at that point. So there was yeah. really no thought in her mind that she was going to stay in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She was definitely going to move to New York for her final year of law school. But she had gone to Harvard saying, can I still get my Harvard degree, even if I finish out uh, yeah. my third year at Columbia? And they were just like, no, that's not yeah. the policy. Now, you know, in my mind, that was their policy and it applied to both men and women and like nobody yeah. was going to make an exception for her. So yeah. like that's just kind of life. I mean, she had a good legal argument, which is that there were people who transferred into Harvard after two years somewhere else that got a Harvard <laughs> degree. But like their rule was like it's where you end up. So um, uh, ironically, um, many years later, after she was already a Supreme Court justice, yeah. uh, Harvard actually tried persistently to give her a law degree and she, she wouldn't take it. Um, so they, I, I think she did, I think she did at some point get an honorary degree from that, but she did, right. she didn't go for right. the, she didn't go for the straight out JD. She kind of felt yeah. like you, you missed your chance guys. That's yeah. a, uh, I, I did wonder about that. Cause uh, I mean, she seemed very rightfully so law review at uh, in the only in her second year at Harvard law. I mean, that's right. uh, quite an accomplishment and then have to, to leave that. But that's also because uh, Martin, her partner in life, was um, he'd been very sick, hadn't he? And she was looking after him and a child and going yeah. to law school. Yes, so it was while they were in law school together with at Harvard with um, Marty a year ahead of her that he developed uh, testicular cancer. This was um, before the era of chemotherapy um, and he had very serious, I believe, radiation treatments and all and was hospitalized and um, wasn't able to attend classes. So she went not only to her own classes, she also went and sat in on all his classes and took notes on them and came and helped him and, you know, basically for, for a year of their law school, sort of did law school for, for the both of them um, with uh, with little or no complaint while, while also raising their two-year-old at that point child. So when people look at how incredibly supportive he was of her mm -hmm. later in life, I think you do have to remember um, that period because I think, you know, aside from being a great progressive feminist husband, I think he was just forever grateful yeah. for the fact that she really, you know, he wouldn't have had a career at all if not for her because she had helped him graduate from law school. Yeah, and I, I put her in this category of people that often of this, uh, of, well, let's call it greatness. How I mean, how many hours of sleep was she getting a night? Because she and that seems to go on way in, 
until the yeah, you know, the Justice Ginsburg wasn't a big sleeper. She was um well, that's actually that's a little bit that's a little bit not accurate. She wasn't a big sleeper at night. She stayed up working until late into the night from yeah. the time, at least from the time she was in law school, all the way through well into her 80s. That was just her yeah. vibe. However, getting up early in the morning was also not her thing. Okay. We, we learned that during, uh, during the, the making of the film. Like, if you wanted to do something with her before noon, that basically was not going to happen. Okay. The only times that she got up yeah. before noon was um, when she was a sitting Supreme Court justice, and they have arguments that start at 10 in the morning mm. um but like it's not like they're doing that every day it's just it's it's three days a week for two weeks in a row and then there's two weeks where they're not having arguments so basically for 12 mornings if i'm doing a year well, no even for less than that for like depending on the month for six or maybe nine or 12 mornings mm. during the month she was getting up to get to the court for the 10 a.m oral okay. argument other than that she's you know she would basically be like come in at noon and then work till nine or ten at night at work and then go home and keep working at home. Okay. And her poor clerks, did they have to keep the similar hours or, or was that uh, yes. an option? Her clerks, her clerks kept similar, similar hours. Um, it was a uh, stressor to them. They often found, um, and they would, you know, the, those we talked to mentioned us, if, if they didn't, you know, the general um, protocol of the Supreme Court is that under the guidance of the justices, the clerks are drafting all or parts of the, of right, the opinions right, before, yeah. you know, with what, the, with what the justice have told them to do. However, if she assigned them to do something and say they went home a little early, like eight or eight 30 at night, thinking that they were going to finish it in the morning, by the time they got it in next, the next by the time they get it in the next morning, she was like, I already wrote it. <laughs> like, it's, it's, too, it's too late. I'm like, she, she, she was like, a, you know, get, get it done kind of yeah. person. So, and of course that was seen as sort of a humiliation. So they learned to just stay up late and, and do the uh, work so that she wouldn't beat them to it. Well, well, speaking of a get it done kind of person, I mean, I think many of us, I mean, I'm, I'm an American, but uh, we all know her for uh, being a Supreme Court justice. But uh, I think what's so great about the film is it uh, deals a lot with her leading role as an advocate for uh, gender equality. And uh, I guess you could say that she was the legal strategist behind the, the women's movement. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a fair thing to say. And in fact, we thought of that really as being the central part of our film, because while people were aware of um, her record as Supreme Court justice, um, which was starting to get a fair amount of attention by the time um, our, our film came out, Many people, even people that were big fans of, of her as the notorious RBG, weren't aware of the role that she had played in America in the 1970s to secure uh, equal rights for the genders under, under the U.S. Constitution. Um, as I say, it stemmed from discrimination that, that she had faced, that because she was unable to get the, the fancy New York law firm uh, job that an Ivy League law school graduate, particularly at the top of their class, might, might expect, um, she ended up uh, becoming a legal academic. She became a professor at Rutgers Law School. And while she was teaching there, so now we're like into the late, late 60s, early 70s, while she's teaching there, her students, her women students, started to come to her and say like, oh, I'd like to learn more about um, the sort of the legal, what, what are the legal arguments for women's rights? This was a time when in the U.S., yeah. the women's liberation movement, women's lib, as it was called at that time, 
was like really all the rage. Like, you know, people were out mm. on the streets, you know, Gloria Steinem, very much a famous uh, mm. figure here, was out fight, fighting for, for women's rights along with a, a number of other uh, people and just like, you know, the, the public at large. So the, it, it was natural that the, that the law students, the female students said like, oh, like, but what about, you know, we've heard about civil rights cases. We've heard about fighting for the rights of black people under the constitution. What about like fe females? Like what, 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 what's the law of that? And asked about that by her students. She wasn't actually sure of the answer. And she went to the legal library and started looking like, oh, what's the case law on in this area? And what she discovered was there really wasn't much. There were a few cases. They had been largely unsuccessful. Um, and, you know, sort of egged on by her students, she started a course in, you know, kind of gender and the law. It wasn't called, like, she, at the time she was using the term sex, and then she realized yeah. whenever she would use the term sex and you're dealing with male lawyers and male judges. Unfortunately, like everyone, yeah. Everyone, everyone got very distracted by that uh, term. So she, yeah. she, sort of, she was actually also a main person between, uh, behind using the word uh, gender to just, you know, talk, talk about uh, those, those distinctions. So... Um, so she started doing some work first with the New Jersey Civil Liberties Union and then with the American Civil Liberties Union to fight for women's rights uh, under the Constitution. And, and as you said, there was no case law. So she, what, what I think is very interesting about the, the film and her career is that she didn't just say, okay, I'll take this next case, whatever. I mean, she, she's, she was so strategic in her thinking and she's saying, well, we need to build this case law and what is the best way of building it? And then from her well, what she considered a defeat, but what really wasn't in one of her first cases, uh, she's like, no, now I know how I have to argue this in front of these nine men, basically. Right. You so know. she was very strategic and very careful about choosing cases in a way that's actually quite common now, but was less common when she was doing it. I mean, there, there's a phrase that American uh, constitutional lawyers and Supreme Court, the Supreme Court bar likes to say, which is that uh, bad cases make bad law. Um, the reverse of that, of course, is that good cases make good law. So mm. the, the idea is to try to find good cases when she was trying to map out a strategy along with her colleagues at uh, the women's, the so-called Women's Rights Project of the, of the American Civil Liberties yeah. Union, of which she was a co-founder. She very deliberately, you know, you look at, you look at like what succeeded before and mm. the very obvious, you know, role model to shape her career after yeah. was Thurgood Marshall who in, um, uh, in the 1940s and 50s had argued a series of cases arguing for racial equality under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. I think he argued like 32 cases and won 29 of them. He just had an, mm. an incredible record, had step by step, had just really moved the ball forward um, until there was all sorts of, you know, really strong Supreme Court law coming down uh, for, for equality between, between the races. Um, he, of course, uh, later became a Supreme Court justice a, as well, um, and, and was one by the time RBG was arguing her cases before the Supreme Court. So she started looking like, how had he done it? Like, he's not yeah. just taking any old case that comes in the door. He's thinking like, is this plaintiff going to bring it, you know, is it going to, are, are the facts here going to be really stark and clear cut? Is the person mm -hmm. themselves going to seem sympathetic? Um, and uh, so she just, she just found uh, great cases that they thought could make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And she, she argued six cases, won five of those, of those six. But 
in some ways that number isn't even quite high enough because there are a number of cases, um, including her first case, which she actually, uh, Reed versus Reed, which she wrote the brief on, but she wasn't the one that argued it. So we didn't mm. you know, count that in her, in her batting uh, record. But, you know, it's, it, it was really very much her field of law that she, that she advanced, which in some ways made the arguments easier because when you're arguing a case before the Supreme Court, the justices are constantly peppering you with questions and yeah. trying to um, trying to dig in to all the previous cases and like the facts and like, but in this case, you said that, you know, there was this mm -hmm. and this and this. Mm -hmm. And normally one of the things that makes it difficult for a lawyer to study for a Supreme Court case is learning all those other cases. Yeah. In Justice Ginsburg's case, case, they were largely her own cases. Yeah. So she really, she really knew the facts and the law and the precedents backwards and forwards. And I think that that really helped. It was like she had a, she had a specialty. I think that makes it easier. Hey, what I didn't realize was that they, uh, that these are tape recorded, these um, sessions in front of the court. And that um, is, it was it just that easy just to get, to, cause I think it's very effective. What you did was actually playing the words that, you know, hearing her in the court um, get, you know, with these different cases. Yes. Um, so since the 1960s, um, all Supreme Court cases, although cameras aren't allowed in, uh, all Supreme Court cases have been audio taped. Um, and uh, the, the battle has been kind of over when they're released. Generally, they're not released on the day of, which has always drove, driven news organizations crazy because that's when people yeah. care to hear about them. Often they would be released. It's, it's changed now. It's gotten much quicker, but it used to be like you know, two months later, they'd come and by that time, yeah. like, kind of, who, who cares anymore? Yeah. Um, yes, but you say, was, was it easy to get them? I mean, yeah, they're on the internet. I mean, okay. <laughs> okay. like, if you go to, so when the, when the Supreme Court opens in the morning, yeah. the session every day, the call to begin the court is a bailiff yelling, Oye, Oye. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, there's a website called Oye, O-Y-E-Z dot org, I think, or .com. I've, I've which, looked at it before. Yeah, yeah. On, which, on which all these audio tapes exist. And there's transcripts, and there's even a transcript that follows along with the audio. Like, if you skip to a place on the transcript, you'll hear that audio. So, mm -hmm. um, and these are, uh, these are public domain. So, um, it was extremely easy. It's just, there just aren't that well known because they're not played that often because by the time, yeah. the time that they're released, the story isn't newsworthy anymore. So, yeah, um, yeah and I, I actually had worked on a um, uh, cable TV as producing a cable TV show about the Supreme Court um, in the 1990s. So I, I was okay. aware of these tapes and we just went looking for them and listened to all her arguments. And we're like, oh my God, these are incredible. She's amazing. Like she was so, yeah. her, her voice is so quiet, but like she's so yeah. tough and like, you know, her, that, we, that we decided pretty early on, oh, we want this audio to be a big part of the film, even if you're not seeing her, like hearing her voice is incredible. No, and exactly. And you're not just listening. I mean, you, you, the way you accompany it with the words on the screen and, and other imagery, I think it was, it was very well done. Um, yeah, I think it came as a surprise to me as someone who grew up in the, in the States and all we got were basically artist renditions of the court and someone right. maybe reading some of the... Uh, right. You, you get know, the sketches and you get someone often sort of trying to paraphrase because a lot of the language that the lawyers are using is just uh, way too insidey. It's kind of hard yeah. to follow. Yeah. Um, one good thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg throughout her career, both as a lawyer and as a judge, she really thought of herself as an educator as well as an advocate. So more than most lawyers or judges, she 
tried to write some of her stuff in language that a regular person was going to be able to understand. I think um, I, so we've, we've talking about her um, uh, being in front of the court, but then um, she starts her uh, career as a jurist. And I thought, uh, you know, she's the, um, well, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. District, which listeners may not realize is probably the second most important court exactly. in the land. Um, it's, um, and she was there, and that's where she actually first met Antonin Scalia, which yes, we Yeah, and where about. she became very close friends with him. So. Yeah, and she also was on the same court with Bork, which is, uh, it must have been an interesting combin- combination of, uh, of people. Um, but then uh, this uh, Supreme Court uh, position opens up, uh, Bill Clinton seems to be hemming and hawing. And, uh, you know, this is even there. It wasn't even a slam dunk, was it, at first? I mean, she was already 60 years old. Right. Um, no, and and, and she was already 60, which is consor- considered to be like, you know, a, you know one thing because justices do have lifetime tenure, they like to appoint uh, younger people so that they yeah. can last longer. Of course, as it turned out, um, Justice Ginsburg ended up being one of the longest serving uh, justices ever. She was extremely proud of yeah. that uh, longevity. There was a certain date within the period that we were um, filming the movie that she became the longest serving Jewish justice. And she was super mm-hmm. proud of that. And we talk about it all the time. Um, but um, yeah, she was not at all the obvious choice, not only because she was older than most candidates would be, but because she was virtually unheard of. Although I talk about like that she played this major role in securing women's rights under the law, like people didn't really care about that. That just, it just wasn't a famous movement while it was unfolding. If you go look for articles of those cases, um, they're, although they seem like important cases now, they're buried pretty deep in the paper. They almost never mentioned her name because who cared? She was like some you know, random uh, civil liberties uh, lawyer. Yeah. Um, and uh, nor were they in law school books. I mean, I, I, I was, uh, was in law school in the 1990s and these cases w- w- aren't in your constitutional law books. Like it just, they just, they just weren't considered a big deal. I, I actually, um, in, the, in the course of the film coming out, coming out, I went to a screening where I met a judge in New Jersey. He just came as an audience member who had been at Rutgers Law School at the time she was teaching there. He said he was very much an activist. He was, all, he was really into civil rights and, uh, you know, and, and Martin Luther King's uh, movement for, for civil rights. He was really into anti-Vietnam war protests. But he said when he learned that Professor Ginsburg was doing the was taking these courses on women's rights laws he was like me and my leftist friends they were like what is that that is so stupid like why do you need women's rights laws like they as as one of the one a good friend of uh justice ginsburg uh, judge harry edwards says in the film like they just didn't get it like yeah. i don't we don't even understand what these ladies are talking about we open the doors for them we pay their for their dinner on dates everyone's nice to ladies like what are they complaining about what more do they want um, <laughs> you know i think what's interesting cuz we have we had another we had the people from crip camp on uh, earlier oh, I love that movie. and um, I, it's amazing cuz that's what i think what's happening with documentary filmmaking I mean, we'll talk about this after after the break but uh, uh, there are all these stories that you thought were told but now you're, we're realizing haven't been told you know, and and so that is documents the uh, the disability rights movement, which you know you look back; these are amazing cases. But how much you know? How much publicity 
did they get at the time? Right, at the time. You know? No, um, I, I'm I'm glad, interested that you mentioned that because I I loved that um, I loved that documentary and. I very much had the reaction seeing that film that a lot of people had to ours, which was like, how did I not know this story? Yeah. Like there's an incredible scene in that where the, the disability rights activists are doing like a sleep in, like where they've over, they've sort of taken over a building in California and the black Panthers come in to like yeah, exactly. support the movement and like serve them, you know, dinner and like these, you know, little tins with a uh, yeah. underneath them. And like the story is incredible. And there's this amazing footage. And it's like, I had no idea. Like, it's like how, how the disability rights movement came to be, why it is that yeah. there are ramps that allow you to get into buildings and like didn't know anything about yeah. how it happened and didn't know any of the people that had made it, that had made it so. I mean, and it's, it's almost embarrassing because I remember the only first I remember hearing about is I was living in Washington, D.C. in the early 90s and my first job and they, you know, they started doing work on the men's uh, restrooms because they had to lower the urinals. And I'm like, what's this right. all about? You know, right. you know, and it, it, now you would just not even think twice, of course, you know, what the, right. the, the impediments we were putting these, these people's lives, you know, right. and not, and not and taking we, into this into account. We tend to think of those kind of changes as something that come from legislators or maybe from the courts. But like, you know, the American Disabilities Act didn't happen because a bunch of like members of Congress were like, oh, you know, let's yeah. actually make buildings more accessible to, you know, right. to people who have physical challenges. Like, no, it's because the people who were struggling with, you know, unfair systems went out incredibly aggressively against all odds fighting for their own rights. And it is absolutely the same case with the civil rights movement, with the women's rights movement, with the gay rights movement, without the trans rights movement. The, like, no, nobody, nobody gives you any rights until you go out and fight for them. Mm. That's, just, that's just how it goes. Well, I think that's a good point for, uh, to give our listeners a bit of a break. So uh, let's, uh, let's do that. And we will be back uh, shortly with uh, Julie Cohen. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with uh, Julie Cohen, the award-winning co-director and co-producer of RBG, the film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, available in various places. Uh, uh, Google it. I know you can find it on Netflix. I think Hulu in the States has it. Um, Julie, we were talking, obviously, about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, she was the second woman to the Supreme Court, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor being the first. Did you uh, think about including her at all uh, in, the, in the film? Did you reach out to, to Justice O'Connor? You know, Justice O'Connor, um, as as she has subsequently um, announced, is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's disease and, and yeah. was already at the time we were making okay. the film, so was not um, in a position to be interviewed, something mm. we regretted a lot because actually um, that transfer of, uh, you know, Justice O'Connor pl played a role in, in RBG's career, including especially um, when... RBG was a young justice and um, what became her most famous majority yeah. ruling uh, opening up um, the Virginia Military Institute to women. When that case came before the court, it was, it was Sandra Day O'Connor's to, to write the majority opinion. She was more senior and she gave it 
to RBG to write. He was just like, you know what? The gender equality law is all yours, Ruth. Yeah. Like, y- y- you need to write this opinion, even though um, RBG was quite quite new at that point, had only been on the court for three years. So um, it was actually an incredibly important role uh, in, in the justice's career, but we were unable to, to interview uh, Justice O'Connor. Okay. Well, that's, I had heard that and I wasn't sure uh, because of the, certainly of the timings. I mean, it is of probably the least importance of things to be discussed, but they did develop this new sort of uniform, if you will, for women justices. Um, the uh, sort of the lace like collar they put on. Um, is it true? You've got this iconic poster, but is it true that the poster originally just included an image of the, uh, uh, is it a, called a jabot? I forget. Uh, it's called the jabot. Yes. Jabot. Yeah. You see. Yes. And and in fact, um, as the film does mention, it's it, it, that that is another uh, legacy of Justice O'Connor. <laughs> you know, you're you're as as a justice, you have to wear a black robe. That's that's the uniform of of being yeah. uh, of being a judge. But there always has been, including for the male justices, the opportunity to embellish that a little bit. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist had a. Um, nice uh, like to decorate his with little uh, stripes like from Gilbert and uh, Gilbert and Sullivan uh, kind of look. I remember um, that from and, the impeachment hearing. Yeah, yeah. And, when, um, and when Justice uh, O'Connor came on the court she as the first woman she was like you know I'd really like to add a little dash of femininity so she started adding these like nice white lace Connor, uh, co- collars yeah. to, to her robe and when RBG came in Justice O'Connor was like hey, I think she may have even given her one she's like hey this is a way to kind of like jazz up your robe a little bit. Uh, Justice Ginsburg liked that. She kind of ran with it. She started wearing different decorative ones. And then as that became more of a thing, um, friends and law students and fans started sending her like all different ones. And Mm. it was she herself, it seems, who came up with the idea of when she was going to read an opinion from, from the bench that she would wear a collar uh, signifying what she was going to read. She had a certain collar that she wore as a majority opinion uh, yeah. collar if she was going to read that. And she had this collar, which was a little bit black and sparkly and spiky that she called her dissent collar. And, you know, court watchers used to love it because if you'd come into court in the morning and even before opinions were read, you'd be like, you, you knew yeah. that our, she was going to be reading a dissent because she was wearing her dissent collar. That's funny. Um, I'll add, because it's re- relevant to the current uh, political situation, um, there were those who noted that on the first, in the first court session following uh, President Trump's election, uh, RBG came into the court wearing her dissent collar. Okay. Well, actually, now that you mentioned that, um, I mean, I've seen New York Times had a recent good article on this about um, this issue. Did you, did you ever broach it with her about why... She didn't retire um, and give, for instance, uh, President Obama a chance to nominate someone in her in her place. Yeah, I mean, she she we asked her about that as kind of, uh, and you know, almost everyone did once it's Trump a was sensitive elected. issue. I know. You know her her answer was she it was sort of twofold. One is like I she was confident she was going to be continue able to continue mm. uh, to serve. She was a woman who had a lot of confidence in her own uh, stamina. I would say um, another that she would pointed out pretty frequently, and which I do think has some some real relevance, was the fact that remember that in February of 2016, you know, a full 
you could do the math, but a full like nine months, I think that would be. Yeah. yeah but before before the next presidential election, yeah. uh, her buddy uh, Justice Scalia died unexpectedly, and the Republican Senate stood in the way of nominating a new a new right. justice. Right. If Justice Ginsburg had been considering retiring at the end of Obama's administration, which he may well have been doing to that point, she then she she, she then was sort yeah. of boxed into the situation where that would not have been possible uh, because even mm. even in February, there wasn't going to be a, a justice um, replacing yeah. replacing Scalia. But I think one thing that one has to factor in um, is that like everyone else in the country on, on both sides, um, nobody thought that Donald Trump was going to be elected president. Like yeah. she just, I, I think, I think in Justice Ginsburg's mind, uh, Hillary Clinton was going to be was going to be elected president, and she was going to be in a situation, um, you know, to 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 serve on the court as um, under the first woman president. Yeah. You know, potentially, who knows? As the as a first female chief justice, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's you know, I think it would have been a different calculation had she had yeah. she been able to envision. Yeah. Um, a Republican president, none of us were, none of us were thinking that was going to happen. Yeah. And I think, but I mean, do you think there's another, some other, I mean, obviously there's many elements to these sort of decisions, but she, uh, I mean, this was her, this is her life. This was her life. She was, you know, she was so dedicated and um, she even threw herself into it from 2010. Uh, For our listeners who may not be aware, I mean, uh, the positions are for life. I think, as you've already mentioned, Julie, and, uh, it's a real no-no, really, at least by tradition uh, and constitutionally, for politicians to start meddling with the uh, the court in such a way. And I gather she didn't take, not that she didn't take too kindly, she just kind of ignored entreaties early on in the Obama administration when they... Right. Well, you know, reporting, some... reporting that's come out over the past couple of weeks since the yeah. justice passed away has been that in a lunch that um, she had with Obama... Yeah that he hinted, although did not directly request, but hinted, you know, Ruth, maybe you should think about whether you want to stay on, mm. you know, or, or, or perhaps step down before the next, and that basically she just didn't take the bait. She didn't yeah. argue with him and say no, but she sort of didn't, <laughs> didn't really acknowledge having heard that argument and that he didn't, um, he didn't push it. I mean, that might be, somewhat hard to believe from the outside. I mean, he was the president of the United States. Why not just say what was on his mind? But you have to understand, Justice Ginsburg was a very intimidating woman. Tiny though she might have been, and with her quiet little voice, she just had this whole force and and like this, this penetrating stare and just everything about her was quite intimidating. And I so so Obama never directly said like Ruth please, I think you should step down. He, he sort of tiptoed around it maybe, and yeah. she just like pushed right past that. Well, well I think you hit on it. The, uh, certainly the, um, I mean, you've got this great archival, st- I mean, there's plenty of great archival. Uh, I mean, even the family stuff or someone's family home movies that you've, you have access to. Um, but uh, the confirmation hearings, um, you know, just the way you see these grisly old men, most, I don't know if there was a woman on the uh, Judiciary Committee at that hearing, but uh you know, uh, and even then Biden seemed a bit old, but, uh, um, you know, the senators seemed to have fallen in love with her. You know, they're just, she's quite an imposing figure. Yeah, but right. But, but both, you know, we, in the film, we interview two of her childhood friends 
who used the term, one of them uses the term quiet magnetism. And I think that is a really good description. It's hard to describe. She was an extremely magnetic person, mm. like, which is weird because you think of it someone who's someone who's like the life of the party and whatever. She's super quiet, mm. but like she was really magnetic. She was really beautiful. And her smartness kind of emanated out of her. And you could just see it in the faces of the Judiciary Committee members, including the Republicans. Oh, yeah. Warren you know, Hatch. I mean, who were just there. They were just sort of dazzled by her, like the combination yeah. of this little, you know, yeah. cute, tough lady who's just speaking her mind. And she was charming. Like they just they really just ate it up. Yeah. <laughs> so how does she I mean. How does she become such a media and cultural sensation? Because I've been over, I've moved to the UK now 18 years ago. And yes, yeah. I always considered her as a, as a, a, a Supreme Court justice. That's quite extremely right. impressive. But she definitely in the last sort of, what was it, last 10 years or so, she just became this media and cultural sensation. Yeah, it was really in 2013 when her uh, when her sort of um, celebrity star started to rise. As you say, like she had worked on the Supreme Court for a couple decades quite quietly, like nobody yeah. was really talking about or thinking about it. She certainly didn't have a nickname. People weren't making like yeah. videos and internet memes about her. That yeah. would be weird. Um, but in 2013 and 2014, as the court was starting to move to the right, um, the justice took um, started writing some dissents to majority opinions that were a little sharper than things she had written in the past, where she really, as I say, she kind of liked to have writing that was going to appeal not just to lawyers and judges, but that the general public were, were going to be able to get. The most famous one was in a case called Shelby County versus Holder yeah. um, in 2013, which was um, had to do with the weakening of the Voting Rights Act, um, the, the American law from 1965 that, um, that protected um, rights of, like it was a sort of federal protections of um, voting rights, particularly in the South, trying to stave off situations where Southern states um, would try to keep black voters from the polls in all kinds of nefarious, frankly, um, ways. Um, that law had been enforced for some time. It was challenged uh, in 2013, um, and the by a 5-4 majority, the Supreme Court weakened some of the Voting Rights Act, made, made, made it a little bit easier for Southern states to have, have discrimination against Black voters. Uh, the court's reasoning, Justice Chief Justice Roberts wrote the ruling, the court's re reasoning was basically like, oh, discrimination is like, you know, our country has changed, were his, his words, but like kind of, ah, discrimination's over. Like, you know, look, we've had a black president. Like, it's all, it's all mm. fine now. Um, and Justice Ginsburg wrote a really strong dissent saying, I think the court is making a huge, both legal and factual mistake in this case. Um, and her words were like taking away these voter protections because they're working, because they pre prevented some voting discrimination, her quote was, is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Yeah, I think um, so. That analogy was so strong that it just, you know, it just became really well known. People loved it. It was a, it was a great, you know, great turn of phrase and, and actually a very accurate analogy to what was happening. And events in the subsequent seven years have really mm. borne out what she was concerned about. Um, and, uh, so as a result, uh, starting with, uh, you know, young law students and then kind of catching on, 
Um, people started, you know, they gave her the name, the no notorious RBG after the notorious yeah. BIG. People started making these little internet memes. They like had this, they took a photo of her and then they, they sort of photoshopped it red and put like a little, you know, chalk like crown on top of it and the slogan, you can't spell truth without Ruth. And like that image was like blanketed. Somebody went around Capitol Hill and just put that on cars and put it on the streets and posted <laughs> it on trees. People started making t-shirts. People started like, it became this thing. And of course it was funny. It was funny because she was elderly and tiny and the opposite of the notorious B.I.G. And then she kind of seemed to enjoy it. Like when people mm. would ask about her, she'd be like, oh yes, me and notorious B.I.G. in common. We were both born and bred in Brooklyn, New York. And that was like a huge applause line. People would sort of go nuts. And like, it just sort of organically grew into this big movement. Then of course, you know, this is 2013, 2014. Then of course in 2016, Trump is elected and the left is even more concerned about yeah. How, about the country's move to the right and as a dissenter she just became a symbol of you know yeah. of sort of standing up to to that maybe and that's a good point i had not even thought of that in a you know well, both sides you could argue but certainly left looking for someone i mean who else was there out there in the in sort of the political realm that the you know and here's someone who had this this history and without um, was well spoken and principled, and certainly someone that you could, uh, like someone said, she, you know, I think is a Gloria Steinem that she closest thing that she could think of as a, of, of a superhero. Superhero, was, yeah. Was. I mean, I I think you know there would have been plenty of people, you know, more of the left kind of in Congress, like figures that were out there mm -hmm. speaking up, but like. It worked better with RBG because of who she was, because right. she was quiet and intellectual and tiny. Like she's real. I'm a small person, and she was she was teeny. She was under five feet, and Amazing. you know, yeah. very thin and very you know you know. And she's a Jewish grandmother, and she came off as a Jewish grandmother. So the fact of this person as being like the tough protector of rights, yeah. like people just seemed to love it. And the fact that she that she enjoyed it was great. And then, as I say, when Trump was elected and there became, uh, you know, the concern about whether she frankly could outlast him, mm. there, you know, and, and uh, you know, on Saturday Night Live, the impersonation of her that Kate McKinnon did, that was just so hilarious, where she's yeah. like dancing and crazy. Like, of course, the opposite of what RBG it, really exact did. Opposite, yeah. But yeah. like, that's why it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it just and because um, Justice Ginsburg was out there publicly a lot, doing a lot of um, a lot of talks, and then even like performing in an opera and stuff, it just mm -hmm. became like a thing. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, we could probably talk about her forever. I mean, for for several more hours. Um, I think what would be good to to maybe think more about the f the film uh, specifically. I mean, what do you think? Well, what do you think her legacy is really? And what is, what do you want this film's legacy to be? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, they're very much, you know, I mean, I think we want the film's legacy just about being, about people being able to understand the role that she played mm. in American history. Um, and, and, you know, as for her own legacy, I think there's sort of two parts to it. One is the, 
incontrovertible fact of what she did as a young lawyer to advance women's rights and the equality of of the two genders um, under the Constitution. Like, she she changed the law for American women, um, as a number of our commentators say say in the film. Um, And that's something that that just will, will stand forever. The other part of her legacy is a little more open to question, which is, you know, a Supreme Court justice never wants to write a dissent. You want to write the majority opinion mm. because that's the law of the land. The dissent is just that you saying like, oh, here are the arguments why I wish it were another way. But one of the reasons it's important to write a dissent is not only to show the public and other lawyers, wherever, like, hey, here's why what just happened was, was wrong or dangerous. The, the, the dream of the dissenter is that the ideas that they lay out will sometime will someday later mm. be picked up on um, and become part of a future majority opinion when the world turns in a better direction and people start to see it your way. Um, and so I'm sure that Justice Ginsburg would hope that her legacy would be words that she wrote in dissent flipping around and becoming mm. the basis for a later majority opinion. Yeah. And, you know, since after, you know, Justice O'Connor retired, but she was then later joined by two f- uh, other female justices, uh, Sotomayor and uh, Kagan. Uh, now we know, um, uh, let's not get into the politics of whys and wherefores in terms of what the Republicans are doing in terms of pushing this nomination ahead, but um, in light of 2016. But uh, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, President Trump has nominated Amy Coney Barrett. Um, what do you think Ruth Bader, Justice Ginsburg would think of uh, Amy Coney Barrett? Um, you know, I don't exactly want to speak for her. Justice Ginsburg did have a, you know, did have a way of wanting to get along with her fellow justices and mm-hmm. even um, seemed to have developed a pretty, a pretty decent uh, cordial relationship with Justice Kavanaugh after his uh, confirmation. Um, that, that's kind of the way of the court, and it meant a lot to her. So I'm, I'm sure she could have been, um, you know, had a cordial relationship with um, Amy Coney Barrett should she become a Supreme Court justice um, as well. Obviously, um, her ideas on many of the issues wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be aligned with RBG's ideas. Um, I think whether or not she's confirmed, given a number of crazy factors with this bathroom yes. is actually very much up in the air right now. Um, that said, I, I, I would be relatively confident that the next Supreme Court justice is going to be a woman, whether it's Amy Coney Barrett or someone else. I think filling yeah. the RBG seat with a woman is symbolically important in a way that both liberals and conservatives understand. Um, You know, one interesting effect of our film or something that we learned from our film was how many um, fans Justice Ginsburg had, particularly among conservative women. And Amy Coney Barrett, by the way, is one of them. She, you know, you know, she may, she may not agree with a lot of RBG's uh, opinions, but she does understand what she did uh, for women's rights, and she understands that she herself benefited from that, yeah. and so. Well, I mean, you've got a conservative stalwart and Senator Orrin Hatch, who you get on camera a few times, who uh, obviously 
was a fan or is a fan of absolutely of, absolutely know. was a big fan um and even said in a moment of the interview that we didn't include in the film because it felt almost so he's just like i love ruth Bader yeah, exactly. he, he really just seemed completely that was sort of yeah. took us aback he really seemed just completely dazzled about her i think he even yeah. said like so cute at one point like, yeah i mean it, it it takes us because i do want to talk about some of you, some other things that you're working on and, and other uh, aspects of the film but it i mean one thing this also does is it harkens back to a time that just seems like ancient history now this bipartisanship it that in the sense that justices would get nom confirmed once they'd gone through a hearing you know, uh, the Senate vote would usually be 90-something to right. whatever. Or not, you know. as, as much as people might think of RBG as a divisive figure now, she was confirmed by the U.S. Senate 96 to 3. Yeah. Uh, Justice Scalia, the sort of the icon yeah. of legal conservatism, was confirmed unanimously by yeah. the U.S. Senate. Like, it's kind of hard to picture that happening now. Like it's yeah, hard to it's... picture a, a Supreme Court, you know, vote that doesn't come down along party lines, which as Justice Ginsburg said very clearly was really sad to her. Bef yeah. Before the, um, the sexual uh, assault allegations came out against uh, Brett Kavanaugh, then, then Je Judge Kavanaugh, yeah. she had actually spoken out in favor of, you know, let's get rid of the partisanship. If the guy's qualified to be a judge, he should be confirmed. Mm. Then she pulled back from that when there became... Uh, the Me Too issue because she was a supporter of the Me Too movement. Okay. How did this film get started? Was this you, uh, your co-director, Betsy West, who we don't, I don't have here today, but um, how, where did this idea come from to, to do a film about Justice uh, Ginsburg? Yes. So the idea did come from us. Um, she, uh, both myself and Betsy, had previously interviewed Justice Ginsburg for two totally separate uh, projects. So she was kind of a topic of conversation about a bit between us. Um, Betsy had interviewed her in 2011. I had interviewed her in 2013. Both of these were before the whole notorious RBG thing took off. Yeah. Uh, and then it did take off and she seemed to be becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And we were noticing kind of the humor of it and yet thinking like, wow, you know, all these people who were talking about, you know, who are putting her face on t-shirts and even getting RBG tattoos, like a crazy thing. That started <laughs> and um, a lot of them don't really know what she did in the seventies to, and it's yeah, just like the yeah. perfect, it's a perfect opportunity to make a film that appears to be about the unlikely celebrity, I, you know, icon yeah. status of this like 84 year old woman at mm -hmm. the time, but is actually about how to achieve rights under the constitution. So it was like such a good combination of fun kookiness and like really deep substance. So it was like, you know, someone ought to make a film about her and like, why not? Why shouldn't that be us? But it, a lot of people have great ideas for films, but how did you actually get this off the ground? How did you get gain access to her? I mean, you said you'd interviewed her before, but was she, she keen? Was she initially um, a bit yeah, reserved about answer, it? No, she wasn't. Um, um, you know, uh, and the thing that, you know, <laughs> turned something from like someone's like, you know, sparkle in their eye idea to an actual film is like just a lot of uh, persistence. Um, mm -hmm the because we had previously interviewed her was was uh, put us in a position where we could write a request to her that we were pretty sure was going to get put in front of her by an assistant mm -hmm. um so we we basically basically crafted a very reasoned uh, email sort of making the case that we wanted to make a documentary about about her and she did in fact get that quickly and answer and sent us an email back quickly which 
um, you know, basically said, you know, not, not yet. The time isn't, oh, isn't right for, for such a yeah. thing. Um, and, um, you know, the reason that there's a film is that we decided not to take that as a no. We were like, okay, that's the, we, we almost took it, you know, uh, I mean, I say this sometimes to young filmmakers who are like, cause it almost never happens when you want to do something that everyone's just like, yeah, great. Come here. Like, so, that's just yeah. not how the world works. Either you get a no or you get a maybe. And to me, the, one of the key things of filmmaking is to figure out how to take a maybe turn a maybe into a yes if someone says no like forget it it's not going to happen like just like you just back up and go away but yeah. if there's a little if there's if there's a little crack of you know a light <laughs> in the door then like yeah. jam your foot in there and start exactly uh, the timing's yeah. not right equals right. yes you know i mean yeah, yeah. exactly the time's <laughs> not, okay so it'll be right it'll be right later and we basically yeah. spent the next uh you know, year and a half um, mm -hmm. <laughs> to get her to let us move forward a bit. And that the parts of the film that actually include her in them are mm -hmm. the very last things that, that we filmed. We started making the film around her, but with her, with her permission, we eventually got her permission to start interviewing other people. Okay. And you get, I mean, you get Bill Clinton on. I mean, that's, I mean, how do you, you must have some strings you're able to pull to get some of these people on. You know, both, both myself and Betsy were, um, journalist for a long time where she, uh, she yeah. was at abc and cbs news i was at nbc news um okay. so we were and we're not kids so we know yeah. lots of people you do you do everything yeah, no. you can to get like to get a request in front of the people and then i mean i think the clinton interview took us like nine months to get it just like calling people again and again yeah. and we want to talk to him for 15 minutes but you just yeah. like i mean yeah. orrin hatch was the same way we oh my god a zillion times we had well, we had called, we had whatever, maybe whatever. And then we ended up on a time we were doing a shoot in, with, with Justice Ginsburg in the Supreme Court. I actually just ran over to his, um, to his Senate office where it turned out that one of his student interns who was manning the desk, you know, a Brigham Young student from the very conservative, you know, Mormon college uh, uh, in, Utah, in Utah, yeah. was like, yeah. oh, RBG, I love RBG. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, you tell your boss. So give me a call and, and, you know, eventually we got the interview. It's about getting past these gatekeepers, isn't it? A lot yes. of times, because once these people are on, they're just, they're happy to talk. Um, yes. And so this, the film's successful, Sundance, grossed 14 million, at least the last thing I saw, uh, Academy Award nomination. 2018 was this amazing year for docs. Uh, five of the top grossing docs of all time. Yep. You had Won't You Be My Neighbor, They Should Not Grow Old. Free Solo, yours to name a few, uh, Three Identical Strangers. Do you ever wish you'd gotten the film out earlier or waited a year just so you weren't up against all those films when you were going for an Academy Award? I mean... Oh, that's weird. You know, I, we never really thought of it that way. It kind of felt like the opposite. It felt yeah. really special to be in the year of docs when everyone was talking about docs. And of those that you list, ours was actually the first to be released. So... Mm. Our, I think our doc really helped the other docs get attention. And as they got attention, we kept getting more attention. Like, you know, when we came out, there was a whole round of stories like, like, oh my God, why are so many, you know, why is your movie so, like the whole round of it was like, why is your movie so successful? And then the next out was, won't you be my neighbor, which did even better. And as soon as they start succeeding, all the same reporters are calling us like, why do you think there's this? And like, why are you, why are people watching documentaries? And then Free Solo comes out and they're calling us again. Like, why do people want to see documentaries? We're like, we don't know, but like, if it, you know, if it gets more publicity for our film, then great. I mean, I, I so I do actually think that the attention to them mm -hmm. um helped us so okay and how has this film changed your life i mean besides probably people think now you're an expert on the supreme court of the united states but i mean uh because uh, this uh, i mean it's such a huge film 
Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it I changed my life. I wouldn't quite, but like changed my career. It did. I mean, yeah, it's given, wow. certainly, given certainly given us the opportunity to, um, make the case for ourselves to make other films. And by that, I mean, to get, you know, you need somebody to give you money to make a movie. And Unfortunately, but yes, that's what it does take. And the easiest, the easiest argument, truly the best argument is to be like, oh, well, I made this other movie that made money for these other people. Like maybe mm -hmm. if I make a movie for you, it'll make more money for it. Because, you know, documentary filmmakers, like even of commercially successful documentaries do not make a lot of money. Like people- I hear that all the time. <laughs> people made some money off our film, but I assure you it was not myself and Betsy. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. that we went broke, but like we, you know, we, yeah. you know, yeah. we did not make a, a, a whole ton of money off it. But the, the good news about the film being successful is that people are like, oh, what are you doing now? Like you like, you make movies that make money. Yeah. And you know, it, when I, when truly I feel like our subject matter obviously was a huge, uh, huge part of that, but certainly it's given us opportunities to, to make other docs and we're very psyched to be doing that. Well, speak, so maybe this is where we'll end, unfortunately, because I know you've got to, to head out actually, but uh, what is, uh, you asked the question, uh, what are you doing next? What, are, yeah. what projects can you tell us about? So, um, uh, yeah, actually, um, Betsy and I have a number of projects in the works, in, in the works, um, both collectively and uh, and individually. And the the one that we're talking about publicly because it's been announced is a film called Julia, which I don't know how this is gonna. I don't know if the British audiences are gonna be familiar with this, but there was an American television cooking icon. Uh, starting in the 1960s, named Julia Child, an incredibly yeah. popular American uh, cultural figure, less well known, we discovered um, in other parts of the world, which of course was the same the same thing with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we, we were actually quite surprised to um, to get foreign distribution because you know most people weren't really familiar with RBG, but seemed mm -hmm. to seem to connect with her anyway. Um, and uh, you know, basically, Julia Child was America's first celebrity television cook and yeah. uh really changed the way americans thought about food like the thought that food could be fun mm. and delicious and important um that was like not an american idea mm. just as it's not a british idea it's like that's a french or italian or yeah. chinese yeah. idea not really like not really the american thing to make good food but julia child was the one that made that happen and has an incredible life story and love story as well so Interesting. I mean, and uh, is that is that yet? Are you still in production? Um, what's we uh, we've we've we're basically just doing the final stages of post. We've you know locked okay. picture, and we're just doing our final wow. uh, our final stages, and that's going to come out in twenty twenty one. Sony Pictures Classics is releasing it, so okay. we've you've heard that here. I mean, uh, quickly. I mean, uh, obviously, COVID has had some impact. I imagine on your. Uh, on getting that film made, but how have you managed to get around that? Yeah, well, we were extremely fortunate um, in the two films that we had in production when COVID hit were uh, largely both shot, were okay. about like 90% uh, shot. So we were able to, so we were in the edit phase, something that actually worked out fine to, for all of us to be sort of just doing from home. Our editors took yeah. all of the footage home and we just all started working over Zoom. Um, there was a piece of it, you know, there were little pieces of it that we had to like that for, for four months, we, none of us left our homes. And then um, we went back out to do, to do the final shooting that we had to do and then finished up the films. Okay, so uh, once again, that's Julia. Uh, and I, I do remember Julia Child. Um, she's, 
She's. I think she even inspired a. Um, maybe yeah, not even a there, was a. there was a narrative film about uh, eleven years ago starring Meryl Streep. Ah, that's right. That's right. Well, and we didn't even mention there's a narrative of uh, RBG as well that came out the same year as uh, as your doc. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, well, so that we can find it on which Sony Max you said. Uh, uh, for Julia. Yeah. Um, Sony Pictures Classics is Sony the, is the distributor who's putting it out. It's also it's also a CNN Films uh, film as well as okay. Imagine. So it'll be all kinds of places. I mean, you know, one big impact of COVID is like where are films going to be? Is it going to be in movie theaters? Are there going to yeah. be movie theaters? Yeah. All remaining Do, to be seen. Does it go straight to streaming? Do you even care about festivals anymore? All these things. I don't even ask these questions anymore because no one knows the answer. Nobody knows the answer. That's right. Well, Julie, um, I know we got to let you go. I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, coming in on a, uh, well, we came in on a Saturday. You're at home, but, but thanks for, computer on <laughs> for turning your computer on, closing the door so the dog doesn't get in. Um, thank you so much. It was great to, we've, I mean, we've been a big fan of, uh, of yours since uh, we saw um, RBG originally. It's been on our list of films we'd love to discuss on the podcast. So uh, it's unfortunate the, the, the hook, I hate to put it that way, but the hook, if you will, is, uh, is the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg. But it was a, a joy and a thrill to have you on to talk about her life and career. And um, highly recommend to our listeners, uh, please do check out uh, RBG. You will not be disappointed. I learned a lot um, about uh, much more than you ever really knew about uh, of Justice Ginsburg. So that's still on various places, including Netflix and Hulu. Um, I want to give a shout out to This is Distorted Studios in uh, Leeds, England, and to remind you to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.